Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We've got our usual format for you today with a news roundup up front and then a question of the week and then we'll have a third segment and wrap up with a weekly pick. So our news roundup will cover three news items as usual. First off, the letter that former Uber employee Susan Fowler wrote about her experiences as, as a female engineer at Uber and various examples of discrimination and misogyny that she dealt with there and kind of the fallout from that. Secondly, the news that Waze, which is owned by Google and has started life as a mapping application or a navigation application, uh, is sort of pivoting to being something of a carpool app, um, sort of a competitor to Uber and Lyft. So we'll talk, talk about that expansion and the sort of prospects there. And then thirdly, we'll talk about Microsoft's announcement this week of a Skype Lite for Android in India. And this is a version of Skype that's designed for emerging market smartphone users with limited bandwidth available and or at least high cost bandwidth uh, designed to be more bandwidth efficient. So we'll talk about that. And then our question of the week today will be, what is the true state of online advertising? There have been various stories in the news recently about um, new auditing requirements for uh, Facebook and Google and YouTube and so on. Uh, there is just a lot of backlash at the moment from marketers and advertisers against some of the online advertising that's going on and some of the, the measurements around that and the metrics, the inconsistency of those metrics and various other things. So, you know, there are these big numbers uh, that these companies are putting up, especially Google and Facebook. And yet, you know, there's really a lot of complexity behind that and a lot of uh, tension between these companies and the companies that are spending all the money on those platforms. So we'll do something of a deep dive around what, what the true state of online advertising is, what some of the controversies and things going on are. And then in our third segment, we're going to do an update on the US wireless market. We did a, a question of the week on this about a year and a half ago. Um, and we haven't really done a deep dive on it since we've mentioned it once or twice in various news items. But we'll do a, a, something of a follow up there, especially in light of the announcements last week of unlimited services from Verizon and AT&T. And then, as I say, we'll, we'll wrap up with our weekly pick. So let's uh, kick off with the news roundup. Um, this has been very much in the news this week, so most of you will probably seen the news already, but uh, former Uber employee um, Susan Fowler, she was an engineer at Uber for about a year and had pretty much a miserable experience there and, and wrote about that experience in a blog post uh, this week, which then, or I guess it was a few days ago now, and uh, that's sort of blown up over the last few days where uh, Travis Kalanick, the CEO, immediately promised an investigation. And um, that investigation now looks like it's going to involve the new, relatively new head of HR there, Arianna Huffington, who sits on the board. And then uh, two external lawyers, one of whom is Eric Holder, sort of fifth, uh, familiar from the Obama administration. So um, they together are going to conduct this investigation. Aaron, what was your take on all of this? Uh, I'm encouraged that that uh, Uber is taking this so seriously, though I'm not sure they had much choice. The um, the letter got a lot of attention, and the the delete Uber hashtag has already trended once in very recent history, so it's not exactly a hard thing to resurrect. I you know, but but at the same time, it is encouraging because gender discrimination in tech has been a problem for years and years. And uh, in, when a huge company like Uber has to take it head on and face it for real, uh, I think what we should expect to see is that a bunch of other companies will take notice because they don't want to be caught in a scandal before they've acted. Um, and you see this in a lot of industries when one industry player gets in trouble for one thing or another, the others all you know, try to avoid having the same thing happen to them. 
and so hopefully in 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 the tech space there um there are more permanent solutions afoot i don't know but we'll have to see i mean the night the thing is is Eric Holder and Huffington and all these people that are part of this investigation are all pretty uber friendly people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I, this is pretty high profile. And if there aren't substantial changes that come out of this, uh, people will see through that really quickly. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. I think there's no way there can be a whitewash here. I think it has to be a very thorough, very thorough investigation. And, and you know that means there basically have to be some big changes off the back of it. Otherwise, people aren't going to take it seriously it really isn't going to have any, have any credibility and that's interesting because it, it really feels like all of this has grown out of a pretty toxic culture in some ways at uber i think it you know, starts with travis kalanick who's, who's a sort of fairly um i don't know i don't know if i want to use the word chauvinistic but he's certainly sort of got a reputation for being something of a playboy personally um you know he's had a number of different occasions where he's kind of got himself and Uber into trouble with various comments that he's made. You know, he really seems to have created a, a culture at Uber in his own image. And, you know, that's kind of coming back to bite them now, where it's, it's a culture that doesn't seem very friendly at all towards women. Uh, the HR culture seems to be very focused on hiring and firing uh, rather than on managing ongoing issues. And, uh, you know, that there seem to be a whole variety of, of big cultural things at Uber that have led to this situation. And so, you know, short of something pretty thoroughgoing, by way of a response following this investigation, you know, it's really hard to see how much change is there. And so it's going to be fascinating to kind of watch this play out. But as you say, this is not exclusive to Uber by any means. This is something that really exists well beyond Uber as well. And so there will be a lot of other companies having a good look at their, I think, HR policies and and the structures of their HR teams and so on and ensuring that they are, you know, doing better than Uber or at least will do better going forward. Um, the second news roundup story is is about Waze expanding into this carpool service, and it's a service that it's been trialing for a while in the Bay Area and is now expanding beyond that into a variety of other U.S. cities and into Latin America as well. Um, you know, it's very interesting, obviously, happening under Google, uh, which also is investing heavily in another area in transportation, which is autonomous driving through through Alphabet's Waymo subsidiary. Um, and so this is an, an interesting thing where, you know, Waze has kind of flown over, under the radar a little bit in this space until now. Obviously, big names like Uber, which we were just talking about, Lyft and, and their sort of equivalents in other markets. Uh, but Waze is kind of getting into this carpool market where, like a ride sharing service, you kind of book a ride with a driver whose main job is something else. Uh, but unlike Uber or Lyft, it's not expected that that driver is going to have that as their job or a second job even. It's basically somebody who's already driving themselves to work and is now going to essentially offer a spot in the car to a carpooler. And so the, the rate that they're paid is not intended to be sort of a wage. It's it's literally the IRS mileage rate, which is currently about 54 cents a mile. And it uh, sounds like Waze is going to kind of take a cut on top of that in time. But for now, it's literally just that. And it all goes to the driver. And so the idea is that people already need to commute are just going to share a car now, much as they might in a sort of traditional carpool situation. So very interesting model. Aaron, what was your take on this? Well, what's interesting is so I'm interested in this because I guess I'm sort of fascinated by how transportation markets can just sort of pop up organically. Um, and it'll be interesting to see tech taking an approach at this. I mean, that's essentially what Uber did in a way, but there are two examples that come to mind. One is the slugging um, thing that happens in Washington, D.C. Essentially, you have a lot of solo commuters that are driving into D.C., and so they can get access to the carpool lane. There are spots where riders will just show up and get free rides into the city so that the driver can access the carpool lane. 
and uh, it's fascinating because total strangers will ride together into into DC every day. Um, but they do this so that they can get the carpooling and go faster. Um, in Africa, there's a fascinating complete substitute for public transportation. And so in Ghana, for example, there are these things that they call trotros, where you, you essentially buy a, a VW bus and uh, and you just run sort of whatever route you think will get you people. Right. And you think there's a huge information problem there because how do you know you're getting on a trotro that's going to take you where you're going? But in mm-hmm. Ghana, they've developed these elaborate hand, symbol, hand signals okay. that sort of signify which part of the city they're going to. And then when you get on, you, you negotiate the price you pay. And then when you get on, you can sort of tell the driver, hey, take a left here and drop me off at this spot, <laughs> even though right. there are other right. riders there. Yeah. And so a driver will just sort of pick whatever route they think will help them make the most money. And it's this mm. massive, and there, I mean, there are, you know, tens of thousands of these in the, in, in the main city in Ghana and Accra. And, and it's just fascinating to think of a tech company coming at this and trying to generate this, but with the support of tech, because I think both slugging and the Trojar thing would be better with smartphones. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, and, and, and it, yeah, exactly. And so I think something like that uh, here that, you know, there's, there's room for that. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think it's fascinating too, to watch this whole ride sharing space kind of shifting from one person rides to this pool model. I mean, Uber, now kind of defaults to the uber pool model where it's available um for better or worse um and uh you know lyft has long talked about you know one of their big goals being reducing uh, the number of miles driven by cars by you know pooling people together for rides and so on and so you know there is this real shift from the sort of traditional taxi model where it's one passenger going to one location and towards a sort of pooling model and whether that's somebody who's already driving is just taking a passenger now whether it's somebody doing it for a living and picking up multiple passengers uh, but, you know, this is, it's funny, you know, it, in some ways it's moving back towards a sort of public transportation model of multiple people traveling together in some kind of vehicle. And yet it's still sort of more customized. It's often a more pleasant experience. Um, you know, you, you get to probably get dropped off at your exact location rather than just the nearest bus stop or whatever. Um, but the cost will come down. You know, that's another big thing. And this Waze service is typically a fraction of the cost of the equivalent Uber or Lyft ride because you're not trying to pay somebody's living. You're just trying to compensate them for gas, basically. So, um, you know, it's actually very cheap. And, of course, Uber Pool is also cheaper than a normal UberX ride as well. And so, yeah, it's fascinating to kind of watch how this changes. But I, there's part of me that wonders whether, you know, certainly for the next five years or so, this Waze service is going to be a much bigger impact on the transportation market from Alphabet than Waymo self-driving cars, which have had arguably massively more investment in them. Yeah, I, but even with considering self-driving cars, it's just obvious that there are huge efficiency gains in American transportation right now. Yeah. I, I mean, there. you know, I, I was telling you before we started recording, I spent three hours in the car today to um, to drive to give a training somewhere else. And, and you know, I, I was in this car by myself you know, right. spending all the gas on my own. And, and uh, it's not it, it's not obvious that in the long run that's worth it. I, I think what it has to, in the end, all the cost savings are going to have to compensate for any losses in convenience because that's the epitome attribute of what Americans care about when it comes to transportation here. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, and no, it's also worth noting, you know, there are plenty of places where 
you know, a carpool model isn't ideal um, because, you know, people live too far apart from each other. You know, it works best where there are sort of fairly dense suburbs heading towards a fairly dense urban right. area for, for work, you know. And certainly, you know, where I live, there's some of that. But, you know, there are plenty of parts of the country where the patterns simply aren't that predictable and where it's not appropriate. And obviously, plenty of moms taking their kids to soccer practice and things like that. that again, Uber and so on are not necessarily appropriate. Right. Um, let's move on to our third news roundup topic, which is Microsoft's announcement of Skype Lite, which is uh, an Android app. Uh, it was launched in India, intended for emerging markets, and apparently was actually built in India by uh, engineers in India for the Indian market specifically. So it's kind of a unique thing in that sense. Uh, you know, we've obviously seen Facebook Lite and other similar programs um, from other companies that you know are sort of customized versions of an app for emerging markets. Um, this app is, I guess, 13 megabyte download, and I don't know what the usual Skype download is, but it's quite a bit more than that. So the download itself is, is smaller, but the other uh, part of it is that it's supposed to be designed for kind of 2G data connections and so on, and um, you know, it's, it's supposed to be just more efficient uh, for, for bandwidth, and uh, it even incorporates bots, and I think this is one of the most interesting things, because you know, Microsoft launched this big bot strategy last year, uh, at build um, and Skype was kind of one of the sort of platforms for that and the problem is it, it, most of the use cases just weren't all that compelling and this this actually is because it's basically a way of getting information you'd otherwise have to get through a web browser with you know all the bandwidth that downloading a modern web page entails uh, and replacing that interaction with a bot um, and so the bot gets you the information you need instead and so that actually feels like the first really compelling use case for Microsoft's bot strategy that I've seen um, but I, you know, I think it's great to see Microsoft kind of innovating around some of this stuff. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting test case of how much companies, tech, American tech companies, are going to have to go to the emerging market rather than waiting for emerging markets to come to them. I mean, we talked about this idea way long ago when we talked about Apple in India, and yeah. the strategy with Apple in India seemed to be, well, there's a rising middle class in China and India, and eventually more and more people will be able to afford iPhones. Right. Um, you know, this approach by Microsoft is indicative of kind of the thing that needs to happen more is is a meeting in the middle. I mean, while these economies mm -hmm. grow, you have to give them the platforms and tools that will help them grow. And something like a Skype light makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to see how data intensive this is, which was a weird. I mean, the very first thing I thought, wow, it's only 13 megs or whatever for the download. And then I thought, wait a minute. Then what about the video chatting? <laughs> right, mm -hmm. but yeah. but I mean your point about bots and other things. There there are definitely going to be efficiencies there that it's smart for Microsoft to take advantage of that because then it also gives them a platform edge when you know when more and more people do enter the the middle class here. I, I remember mm -hmm. you know back in the early two thousands when mobile was you know had pretty much taken over uh, the developed world. There was there were all these sort of creative, innovative ideas of trying to get cell phones into the developing world. Grameen did this Grameen phone program where a lady would, in a village, would rent, would buy a phone, and then people could rent it from her. So she was essentially like a, a village payphone. Right. Um, you know, and and the people who were designing these programs were thinking, it's going to be a decade or more before individuals can get cell phones. So it, was, it turned out it was like three years later. But the reason that individuals were able to afford cell phones is because Nokia figured out how to make really, really cheap, you know, first simple phones and then feature phones. <clears throat> and now Android smartphones are, are, are moving really fast. And it's because companies are, are meeting the emerging markets coming to them rather than just waiting for them to show up and be ready right. to afford the more expensive stuff. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I think, you know, it's great to see this innovation. I think, you know, we're going to have to see more and more of this as mature markets kind of become saturated with some of these services and the biggest opportunities are in these emerging markets. The question then, of course, becomes how do you make money? Um, you know, disposable incomes are obviously far lower. Uh, something like Skype doesn't have a great business model anyway, other than sort of people who use it for work and therefore are willing to pay for sort of Skype out or voicemail or things like that. So, you know, it's the kind of usual challenge with Microsoft and the consumer market is it's produced some really interesting stuff, but hardly any of it actually makes money. And so right. that's another challenge they have. And obviously there's a crowded existing messaging space in India and many of these emerging markets. So they have to try and displace competitors as well. So uphill battle still, but as I say, good to see them trying. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said up at the front, um, this is a question about the online advertising market. And really, it's about what the true state is of online advertising. And obviously, we've all seen the numbers from Google and Facebook. You know, the, there are massive numbers now in, in online advertising. There's a lot of money going into this. It's one of the biggest uh, categories of advertising now, kind of rivaling some of the, the traditional ones. Um, and yet, there's really a lot of complexity behind that, a lot of moving parts. And you know, the relationship between advertisers and marketers is, and, you know, the various platforms they advertise on is far from straightforward. You know, Facebook had a number of big mishaps towards the end of the last year uh, where they misstated metrics for both advertisers and content providers and have had to sort of rectify those and issue corrections and so on. Um, but there's an ongoing sort of movement towards better auditing and more consistent measurement and so on. So there's a lot going on. And so Aaron spent some time really kind of diving into this and he's going to be answering some questions about all this. Um, so Aaron, why don't we talk a bit more about kind of the background and the context here for some of these questions that we're going to be asking. Sure. Um, well, so it's interesting because digital advertising is actually coming out of a, a somewhat bumpy year, especially toward the end of that year. Not bumpy in the sense that it's been struggling to get money. To the contrary, it's been growing really quickly. Um, in fact, this year it surpassed TV ad spend for the first time ever. Both of those are at about $72 billion a year in the United States. And so for the first time, online advertising caught up to and passed TV advertising. They both collectively account for about 70% of, of ad spending. So these are now the two largest categories. Um, the reason it's been bumpy is because the returns on digital advertising have not been clear and compelling. And so all these marketers and advertisers have been complaining, essentially, because they're, because did, online advertising sort of promised the world, and, and now nobody knows if it's delivering. Um, well, I mean, they know it's not delivering, but they don't know why it's not delivering. Um, in fact, this all sort of came to a head toward the end of last year, when the chief brand officer of Procter & Gamble, a guy named Mark Pritchard, gave a speech at the Internet Advertising Bureau's annual leadership meeting. Um, this is a big industry meeting. Um, the fact that Mark Pritchard was speaking out on this issue is notable because Procter & Gamble is the largest online advertiser in the world. They alone spend about $7 billion on online advertising. And it's because they have a ton of brands, and so online, uh, consumer brands, and so that's why it makes sense for them to advertise online. Is interesting. His primary complaint with online ad companies like Google and Facebook, which, by the way, are have built are building a duopoly here that we're going to need to talk about. But, but uh, Pritchard's complaints primarily related to three things. There's a fourth thing that had to do with ad agencies and transparency, and we won't get into that because that'd be a whole other topic. But, um, but his complaint was first with programmatic ad buying, and so the way uh, uh, the majority of online advertising works is you essentially send an ad out into a bunch of algorithms. 
So you craft your ad, whether it's a banner ad or a video roll or something like that. You send it out, and then it gets placed algorithmically um, to certain kinds of websites, targeting certain kinds of users based on their browsing history. That's I, that's you know captured in cookies. Um, anyway, this programmatic ad buying um, is a mess. It, it's a mess for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, Ads often end up on undesirable websites, so your so your product is getting advertised on a website that is that that can tarnish your brand, right? Um, it, it or your ads just get in front of the wrong audiences, like the the the, the demographics you're targeting are not the people seeing it. And this is ad waste, and there's a huge concern about ad waste and programmatic ad buying. Um, but then there's also this massive chain of uh, of involved companies like a supply chain where essentially entire companies exist just to sort of get their cut of the programmatic ad spend and the reason they can do that is because they just have to make deals with the people above and below them the advertisers may not even know that these firms exist right but somewhere along the chain of a programmatic ad buy this company steps in with their proprietary technology to make the ad i don't know you know, like hit hit a better hit a better demographic target, for example. And, and so there's a there's a huge um, there's a, there's a there's a massive um, clump of these companies where advertisers don't even know that company X is getting you know three percent of their ad spend. Um, so that so in the programmatic ad buying space, there are a lot of problems because there's very little transparency and a lot of complexity that makes it confusing to advertisers. Um, another problem is that in online advertising, there's not, there aren't standards of viewability. So, um, you know, there are different ways to measure the cost of advertising. You can pay per click, where that's a little more obvious what's happening with the ads, but you can also pay per impression. And when you're paying per impression, it's hard to measure exactly what an impression is. Um, for example, if you have a video ad that uh, rolls over a website, like like The Verge does, for example, you know, you go to the homepage for The Verge, and then often you're presented with a video roll. That is if you don't have an ad blocker in place. But but the point is, is you know, you can click out of that quickly. Well, um, so you don't have to watch the whole video. Well, when that happens, you know, how do you measure that impression? Like, how do you measure how much of the video? I mean, you can, you know, obviously with technology, you can measure how long somebody spent watching the video. But to what to what degree does that actually matter to the consumer, like how much of the video do they need to watch for the video to have had its impact, and then how should platforms or or, or pro internet properties charge the advertiser based on those uh, on the amount of the video that the person watched? There aren't really viewability standards in this sense, um, and so uh, you know it's not just a problem with like how much of a video ad does somebody watch. It could be a problem with an ad that sort of straddles the fold. So the you know the fold on any website is is sort of what you have to scroll down to see, right. and uh, and so one of the questions is okay, what if I've got an ad that's below the fold? How do I know if it if the if the consumer saw it, or what if it's straddling the fold? How do I know right. you know whether or not that impression should actually count? And so uh, Procter and Gamble is going to be pushing for more standards in this space. Um, Part of the reason there need to be standards is because there's something of a walled garden surrounding both Google and Facebook and the way that they measure um, and, and provide metrics to advertisers in terms of ad impressions. 
Um, in fact, this is where they've fallen down in, in, in very public ways. Uh, both Facebook and Google in the last four or five months have had to come out publicly to say that they've actually mismeasured certain metrics. Uh, Facebook, for example, back in September had to go back and tell a bunch of his video advertisers that they overestimated in, in the way they measured the number of people who had viewed a video ad. Well, the problem is there's no external way to know whether or not Google and Facebook have done a good job in fixing these problems or if there are other problems lurking that you don't know about. And it's because of the way that Facebook and Google completely own and control the metrics situation. Um, they don't allow anybody to have access to the raw data. They just sort of output summary metrics for any given ad campaign. And you just have to trust that Facebook and Google know what they're doing and they're measuring accurately. Um, and so this has actually been controversial enough that both, and Google and Facebook's mismeasurements have been controversial enough that uh, they both submitted to audits by uh, the Media Research Council, which is a nonprofit organization oriented toward developing standards and advertising. And we'll talk about that more later. So you used the word duopoly, I think, at one point, in talking about Facebook and Google, and it's certainly a, a term that you see bandied around a lot. And, and clearly, they, not, it's not a literal duopoly in the case that, in the sense that they have, you know, 100% of the market share between them. But what kind of duopoly do they have? In what sense are these two companies a duopoly? They're capturing all the growth in online advertising. In fact, so last year, both Google and Facebook grew their ad platforms by, or their sort of their capture of the ad spend by about 103%. Well, if you do the math, what's obvious then is that every other online advertiser shrunk, right? Because right. that's the only way for Facebook and Google to capture more than 100% of the growth. Uh, in fact, every new dollar spent on advertising, um, about 88 cents of it is going to either Google or Facebook by a recent measure. Mm -hmm. um, they now collectively own about 50% of the market share of online ad spending. And because they're where all the growth is in online advertising, they'll probably be at about 70% or more by 2020, which isn't that far away. Right. Uh, it seems obvious why this is the case. They just have huge presences on the uh, online. I mean, Facebook has one and a half billion users, and it has the strongest mobile advertising platform in existence because the Facebook app on Android and iOS is, is on so many people's phones. And because Facebook has gotten people to use the app instead of web, they've had a much easier time sort of figuring out ad load, right? Figuring out how, you know, what sort of ads work. They, they, because of the nature of a social network, they're, they're arguably better at targeting than anybody else in the world. And so, so it makes sense that Facebook would be big and growing so quickly. And, it's, and we've talked about in Facebook earnings before how fast Facebook has been growing in terms of its revenue. Um, Google obviously completely owns search advertising because they completely own search, right? I mean, like there are a handful of competitors that are not very big. Mm -hmm. But because everybody searches on Google, then Google controls all search advertising. And then as far as other website advertising goes, Google's family of ad businesses um, are the largest single advertising platform on the web. Um, we've talked before about how Google is having a hard time growing in third party uh, you know, ad revenue. And it's, most of its ad revenue has been, has been growing on the backs of its own properties like YouTube. But that's because YouTube and Google's other properties the content properties are also growing very quickly and have huge penetration. And so, I, I mean, so 
it makes sense that they would be so big and, and that they would own so much of the online ad space. Um, in fact, there's an interesting side effect that um, I wasn't aware of until I was doing research for this question, which is that ad tech funding dropped for the first time ever. So if you were a company developing ad tech, which is an industry that has grown quickly um, you know, over the last five to ten years, it used to be the case that there was a lot of venture money available to you from angels and VCs. And for the first time ever, that dropped, and it dropped dramatically. So ad tech funding over the last couple of years has dropped 33%, and the number of ad tech deals from, from last year to this year dropped by 17%. And so if you're starting a new ad tech company, a bunch of investors are scared off because Google and Facebook are, are owning everything uh, in terms of growth. Um, but here's the problem, right, is that Facebook and Google have this huge market duopoly over ad spending, um, but but it's not all rosy, right? I mean, Facebook uh, revenue per user is their growth in that metric is slowing, um, and they've guided continued slowing in 2017. And Google's cost per click rates, for example, are going down, which says that advertisers aren't getting their money's worth at current rates. So, the projections of Google and Facebook growing to 70 percent or more of online ad spending in the future. That those growth rates are premised on the idea that advertisers are getting their money's worth, but that's not actually as obvious. Right, okay. So we've seen a lot of stuff about this MRC auditing recently, and obviously Facebook kind of had to submit to that after we got a lot of pressure from marketers um, because of those bad metrics towards the end of last year. But I saw a story that in the last few days about Google and YouTube also uh, starting to submit to some MRC auditing. So can you talk to us a little bit about what that, what, what is the MRC, kind of what does that auditing entail and, and why is that necessary? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's necessary because advertisers don't have confidence in the metrics that are being given to them by Google and Facebook. Because Google and Facebook control all the data tied to advertising and they don't release it to anybody, there's no external way to verify that the data you get, that the metrics you're being given are based on accurate data and an accurate analysis of the data that exists. Um, in fact, the, in the ad industry, this is, was a new phrase to me. They call this uh, grading their own homework, where that's essentially right. what Google and Facebook have been doing is grading their own homework. And, um, and so that's why advertisers have pushed for this external auditing process. So Google, like you mentioned, has agreed to submit to an audit of ad views, like video ad views on YouTube. Um, and then they're also submitting to an audit of AdWords and DoubleClick. And, uh, excuse me, uh, Facebook for its part, Facebook offers something like 220 different ad metrics, like different ways to measure how an ad was seen or, or interacted with by, um, by a customer. Um, but what's interesting is they have very little transparency about how they calculate all these different metrics. Um, and so in both cases, um, it's actually MRC is just supervising the editing, the auditing process, and it's going to be third-party companies that do the analysis of the data. And this is this is this is what advertisers have been wanting for a while: is that they can hire independent third-party companies who can analyze the raw data and give them direct feedback. And Google and Facebook have been very hesitant to offer the data over because they recognize that that's a huge um, asset for them to control. And they don't want to be handing off to third-party companies 
who are making money that they that Facebook and Google feel like they should be making in this process. Right. And so this auditing process is something like a, a negotiated settlement of sorts, mm-hmm. right, to try to get. So the MRC is going to oversee these third-party companies going in and getting access to the raw data to figure out if this is how – to figure out if these ads are behaving the way that advertisers are being told by Google and Facebook that they're working. Um, an interesting byproduct of this might be that – companies start to discover that the hyper-targeting that goes on, uh, like on Facebook, for example, the hyper-targeting may not be working. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a sort of idea out there, um, and, it, and we've, we've brushed against this issue when we've talked about data privacy. You know, the idea is that if a, if a company knows my internet habits, they know an immense amount about me. They know how many kids I have. You know, where I've never told anybody on the internet that, but they might know it by implication. They they might know my favorite color. They might know my favorite midnight snack. So you get what I'm saying? Like, there's there the idea is that they can sort of figure out in really fine grained detail who I am. Well, the advantage of that arguably is then advertising can be hyper targeted to me. So the ads I'm getting are exactly the kind of ads I want to see. Um, that. That, that may be something of an illusion, at least now. Now we may get to the point where where we have sophisticated sophisticated enough analysis tools where that where the hyper targeting actually works. But Procter and Gamble, for example, is has said, and Mark Pritchard said this in a speech, that they're they're probably going to start pulling back from the hyper targeting. And the reason is because it's hard to know what kind of customer might buy your product. It's just hard to know. Yeah, a lot of especially factors. I guess with with their consumer packaged goods that that P and G sells, to some extent they're generic, right? So like yeah. it's toothpaste, right? So I don't right. need to know that you're a 27 year old living in New York City with your parents or whatever. You know, like everybody needs exactly. toothpaste to some extent. So you know, if it's brand advertising for a fairly sort of general use product, then it, it seems a lot less relevant. Exactly, and so there's this kind of promise that hyper targeting was the future of online advertising and. And if this audit process picks up steam, advertisers may be discovering that the hyper-targeting is actually not this sort of golden goose, right, that can, that can get you exactly the right customers and maximize them. And, uh, and so the problem is there are always going to be these risks of ad waste. There are always going to be these risks that you're missing key demographics or key consumers. And so that's, that, that's going to be one of the interesting things that might come out of this is uh, – is, a more realistic view of hyper-targeting as, a, as an advertising approach and that it may not be all it's cracked up to be. Right. So given you know everything we've talked about, we've talked about on the one hand, there's something of a duopoly with Facebook and Google capturing a lot of the growth in the market and increasing share of the total market. We've talked about the frustrations that a lot of marketers and advertisers have uh, with the way things work at the moment. It feels like there should be some kind of an opening here, you know, some opportunity for another company to come in and take some share. I mean, is there any prospect for that, do you think? Well, Snap sure hopes so, right? <laughs> I mean, they're banking, <laughs> their, they're banking their IPO on this argument that there's room for them in the online ad spend space. Um, and they're hoping to do it in innovative ways, right? It's not just about data and metrics because it turns out that's something that they need to be a lot better at. Um, but they are doing some pretty innovative ad offerings, right? Lenses have been a really cool way for brands to connect with young people. Just stories generally are a totally different way to advertise than, you know, where it feels more organic, more impulsive. 
um, in a way that might actually connect better with consumers, you know, than than a than an expensive, highly produced ad. Um, so so Snap is going at it that way, saying, look, we're going to advertise differently than anybody ever has, and we're going to have a platform of consumers that are that are interested in this kind of advertising because if you look at engagement with things like branded lenses, it's pretty dang high. The problem is the Snap hasn't been able to show the way that translates into actual consumer buying purchasing behavior, and that's what they have to do a better job of next. Um, you know, as far as other online competition, uh, you know, Twitter sadly is kind of hopeless in this space. I mean, they captured at 1.6 billion, I think, in ad spend last year, but that number is not growing; it's going down, and it's not clear that they've figured out how to how to use their platform for ad revenue, and that's been the constant problem for them and continues to be. I think the most interesting competition in this space is actually going to be the AOL-Yahoo merger of companies. I think it's going to be interesting because Yahoo properties right now have a billion monthly active users, which surprises a lot of people, but when you add up all their properties, it makes sense. I mean, they have, you know, fantasy sports for them is huge. Their finance platform is really, really big. Um, uh, they've got Tumblr, um, which, you know, a lot of people are hoping will get a renaissance once it gets under AOL's management. And so that collectively with what AOL is already doing by having really strong web properties like Huffington Post, TechCrunch and Gadget, and, uh, you know, these networks of, of online news sources combined, both of these companies are estimated to account for about 6% of online ad spending, which actually leapfrogs Microsoft who who, you know, once this merger goes through, Microsoft will go from third place to fourth place in online ad spending. Now, this AOL-Yahoo merger is going to create a new company that will have, be in third place, but with only 6%. So that's pretty distant third place. That said, a company that can capture 6% of online advertising spending is not a company that you turn your nose up at. I mean, they're really, like I said, they've got prominent properties that a lot of advertisers are going to be interested in. And so I, I think what's what's cool about AOL as a company generally is the way they've kind of reinvented themselves to focus a lot on these sort of content properties. And they've also done a really good job of making advertising meaningful for the people who advertise with them. And... Uh, and I think they've been very friendly with advertisers um, rather than sort of algorithmic, which is how Facebook and Google have been approaching it. Um, I, so I think the AOL-Yahoo merger will be an interesting one that that might crack open that thing. I think in the end what it comes down to, and this is something I didn't really appreciate until I was researching this question, is that things need to change. There, all this money is poured into online advertising, and now it seems really obvious that that – that, I mean, I can't say it was a gold rush mentality, but it was sort of like a don't get left behind mentality for online advertisers or for advertisers to move online, uh, to move more more money and more resources online. And now that they've all done this, and Pritchard even talked about this, now that they've all done this, they're sort of coming to the realization that, uh, that it, they're not getting what they hoped out of it. And so, so things have to get better. Metrics have to get more transparent. Um, uh, targeting has to get more sophisticated and thoughtful. And in the end, the quality of advertising still matters. I mean, it's you're not. It's not. You have to run good campaigns with compelling messages, and that doesn't change when you move online. 
and uh, and I think advertisers are finally starting to appreciate all this. Right. Well, great. Well, thank you, Aaron, for looking into that for us. It's it's a topic that we've kind of alluded to a bunch of times, but we've never kind of done a deep dive on it. So we really wanted to do that today in the context of some of the recent news. Uh, as usual, we'll link to some stuff, including the talk by Mark Pritchard that Aaron's referred to several times. It's a great sort of summary of at least one very big advertiser's perspective on all of this. So we'll link to that, among other things. Uh, our third segment, as I mentioned at the beginning, is going to be about the US wireless market. Um, I think it was perhaps episode 18 early on um, when we did a question of the week about the US wireless market. It's a topic that I spend a lot of time uh, working on for some of my clients, but uh, it's something that we haven't touched on in depth since then. That was about a year and a half ago. And so we really wanted to kind of revisit it. One of our listeners was requesting it via Twitter and, and it seemed like a good time to do it in, in uh, view of the Verizon and AT&T announcements around unlimited plans last week. Um, just to recap for anybody who's not familiar, last week, I think it was actually technically on Sunday, the news mostly got covered on Monday. Uh, Verizon did this very rapid about face, having spent the previous six weeks or so really pushing hard this message that you don't really need unlimited and five gigs is enough for most people. Uh, they did this about face and suddenly said they were going to do unlimited services again after all. Uh, AT&T then later in the week also announced that it would make unlimited services available to everyone having kept them exclusive to people buying DirecTV and AT&T mobility bundles uh, in the sort of last part of 2016. So, um, you know, both these companies which had resisted this for several years have now kind of caved and said, okay, we will do Unlimited again. Um, in the middle of all of that, and we mentioned this last week, T-Mobile released its results, which showed that it had been doing very well against Verizon in the first half of Q1 uh, in terms of winning customers. And, uh, you know, that seemed to have been what was behind Verizon finally caving on this point, even as they seem to be fighting harder than ever to resist it. Um, at any rate, all this leaves us with, you know, potentially one of the most interesting years in the U.S. wireless market in recent memory in that, uh, you know, it started out like the last two years, basically, with, you know, T-Mobile launching yet another full frontal attack on the big carriers, Sprint also kind of aggressively attacking them. The big carriers kind of steadfastly resisting to cave to this pressure to provide unlimited plans. And suddenly all that's changed. And, you know, the two big carriers suddenly basically neutralizing the biggest competitive threat and differentiator in the form of unlimited and in the space of a week suddenly kind of turns the competitive dynamic on its head. It, it removes that as a competitive weapon for the two smaller carriers who've both used it heavily. Um, it means that they have to fall back on their other differentiators. And, and for T-Mobile, their current thing is uh, we don't charge you taxes and fees. In other words, they kind of discount the price of your service by the equivalent of the taxes and fees and bake that into the bill. Uh, Sprint's been largely about price as it has been for some time now. You know, those are both interesting differentiators, but they both come down to price. And the trade-off in the U.S. wireless market is always price versus network quality. And the reason why T-Mobile and Sprint have to compete so aggressively on price is because there is partly reality, partly perception that their networks are inferior to the two big networks. And uh, so they have to charge less in, in order to attract customers. And so all kinds of interesting dynamics going on here. Um, in the short term, it's very unpredictable as to how Verizon and AT&T's growth may actually be you know, boosted significantly by all this. Uh, and T-Mobile and Sprint, conversely, may find it that much harder to grow. But there's also lots of longer term implications. And, and before we started recording, Aaron and I were talking about some of this. So Aaron, why don't you talk about some of your thoughts around all of this? Well, I, you know, I mentioned this last time we, we were on this topic that Unlimited seems like the inevitable future of, of, uh, of wireless plans. 
I don't know. I mean, I think what it will, you know, it, there's just a lot of value offered to a customer by saying, hey, connect whatever you want to this. Here's your basic account. There might be a per device fee, but you don't have to worry about overages anymore. You don't have to stress about that. I think a lot of people want that. And, and that's what happened with minutes, right? Minutes went from limitations on total minutes. If you called in the evening, you could, you know, get, uh, you could get free minutes and it was all just sort of weird and wonky and consumers don't like that. They don't like having to manage this as part of their, you know, as part of their day-to-day life. And so instead if they, if they can just sort of get it unlimited and, and not have to stress out about it, then I think that's, that it just feels like a gravity that wireless carriers are going to be pulled toward no matter what happens, because it's, it's fundamentally what consumers really want is just this low stress internet connection that can do voice and help them surf the web and download apps and stream music and, and to not have to stress about which, um, to not have to stress about any of that or to keep an eye on, on your, on your data limits. I think there's going to be a huge value for customers in that. I think the, the interesting question is just how well these networks could manage that as we're moving that direction. I mean, when the iPhone was launched and AT&T had exclusivity and a whole bunch of iPhone users were carrying unlimited plans, um, you know, AT&T's network reputation suffered dramatically because they were just constantly getting hammered by these high usage customers. And that's that was what the smartphone meant for the fu- their future. Um, you know, there's there's a technology challenge to providing unlimited data to to all these people, and it'll be interesting to see that the way that that's sort of managed and negotiated by companies by the wireless carriers as they move that direction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the single biggest challenge for the carriers, especially for the two big carriers who have these you know, massive bases of over 100 million customers each. You know, they really have to figure out what are those customers going to do now. Are they going to in droves switch from tiered data plans with overages to unlimited data plans. And if they do so, is their usage going to dramatically change, you know, or are they merely changing for the sort of peace of mind that you get with an unlimited plan? You know, just as you don't go to an all-you-can-eat buffet because you expect you're going to eat the whole buffet, uh, you know, you go because you'd like to have maybe a range of things. You'd like to just not have to worry about picking one particular thing and having to pay for every individual item. Um, You know, there's various different reasons why people move to these plans, and a lot of it is about peace of mind. And so... Under one scenario, it's possible that you get lots of people switching to these plans, but their consumption basically remains unchanged. But there's another scenario that says, wow, I finally don't have overages. I'm going to stream Netflix or Hulu on the way home every every night on the bus. Um, you know, that obviously has a much more dramatic impact. And even though any individual user making that change isn't all that significant from a network congestion perspective, if there are a lot of users switching in that way, then that obviously does have an effect. Uh, and then the other effect is just that once you move somebody to an unlimited plan, you've basically capped their spending. Until you decide to increase the price for that unlimited plan, uh, you're not getting any more money out of that user. You know, back in the old days, you could charge extra for navigation, you could charge extra for some kind of music service, you could charge for maybe mobile TV, you know, there's all kinds of services that carriers used to offer, ringtones. Um, you know, that's all gone. Uh, at this point, it's text and voice and data, and that's it. And they're all unlimited now. So unlimited text and, and uh, voice have been de facto standard now for several years, but now unlimited data is coming back. You're basically saying unlimited everything for a certain monthly fee. Uh, now, technically, there are still some limitations. You know, none of these carriers are basically saying go for it and use whatever you want. There are limits on tethering devices. There are limits 
Uh, if you go over a certain amount, it tends to be somewhere in the mid-20s gigabytes per month. Uh, if, if you are on the network at a congested time in a congested place, you'll be the first to see your bandwidth throttled if you're over a certain amount of usage per month. So there are some limitations. It's not truly unlimited, and, and some people have kind of criticized the carriers over that. Um, but, you know, you are basically saying, you know, you're never going to spend more until I decide to increase the price. And in a market that's fairly saturated and, and very competitive, it's going to be increasingly hard for these carriers to increase the price uh, of unlimited offerings. And so that's going to be an interesting squeeze on margins over time because the costs are obviously going to continue to go up as consumption goes up. Um, you know, over time, just have to put more capacity on the network for, for better coverage, better throughput. Um, and the fact that people are just consuming more and more video in particular, which is still by far the biggest driver of, of data consumption. So there's all kinds of interesting sort of uh, side effects of, of these moves to unlimited. It's possible, as I say, everybody just stays on the plans they're on, very small number move to unlimited. Uh, but it's also possible that it's, it's a lot more dramatic than that. Yeah, I, I think the, the reality is part of the reason that consumers may not move has more to do with inertia than, than value. Um, I, you know some people get locked up still into contracts, although they're less common than they were before. Um, but, uh, but, but also just sort of the hassle of making a switch and, you know, getting on the website to figure out how to change your plan or calling in, which I think a lot of people dread <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, to change your plan. That's true. Yeah. But I think, but the way it's going to change is as people are getting new devices, that's when they reevaluate. Right when you right. when you get your new iPhone right. or your new Samsung Galaxy phone, and then you're deciding, okay, what do you have to make a choice? Okay, what plan do I want this on? And that's so I, it's not going to be an all at once thing. It's going to be a gradual thing as 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 hardware upgrades are happening. Um, but I do think you're going to see more more people moving that way. I mean, it's always been a problem with unlimited, not just for the wireless carriers, but also for the at home ISPs. That that the there are a handful of people who make who make the unlimited thing challenging, right? Most people are using within a normal range, and like you said, Verizon was marketing based on that just recently. But uh, but there are this this there's this tiny handful of people who are just hammering their unlimited plans, um, and, and it was that way at home. Like Comcast has struggled with this, and uh, and has had to do you know throttling at certain caps to sort of handle these users who, I don't know what they're doing, lots of file sharing or something, I guess. But, um, but you know, wireless carriers are going to have that same problem. I think there's just going to be a, a set of outliers that are using really incredibly excessive amounts of data. Um, but over time, I think they'll figure out how to manage them. I don't know. And, and you know, who knows what's in the future? I mean, I, both Intel um, and Qualcomm have announced uh, you know, new radios um, that can handle gigabit data speeds. Um, you know, te technologically, we may get to the point where, where it's not the, like carrying that much uh, network um, load is not going to be as bad as it has been in the past. Yeah, there's, and there's a whole question about 5G and whether these unlimited plans count for 5G as well or whether somehow the pricing changes if you move from a 4G to a 5G device and, and so on. So... Lots of other sort of long-term considerations as well. Well, let's wrap that conversation up there. Hopefully that was a useful update for those of you that are kind of interested in that particular topic. And uh, we'll wrap up the episode as well with a weekly pick. And this week I'm going to recommend an app. I haven't done that for a while. Um, but I, I, uh, 
a while ago, I guess it was over Christmas, a member of our extended family got um, the game Boggle for Christmas. It's a little, uh, little not quite a board game, but sort of a, a game where you have a, a set of letters in a box and you kind of shake it up and then the letters are in a grid and you try to make words using the letters. And it was, I hadn't played it for a long time. It's kind of a reminder of how much I enjoyed it. And so I immediately sort of thought, well, that would be a great game to play on my phone. And so I went looking for it and it doesn't exist on the phone for whatever reason. There is no official version of Boggle for iOS, at least that I can find. Uh, there are boggling. some clones. I'm sorry, I there can't are... resist. <laughs> What's that? I said I find that boggling. Why would Boggle not be on <laughs> the iPhone? I don't say, I'm sorry, that's terrible. We just lost like like 50 listeners. <laughs> and some brain cells. Um, but no, I mean, it's just one of those things where it just isn't there and it's a kind of classic, you know, sort of uh, real world company failing to sort of adapt to the digital age perhaps. But uh, at any rate, it's a fun game. Couldn't find it. But I did find an app called Wordlings, which is, you know, there are some sort of boggle clones out there and I never feel very good about buying those. But there's this great little app called Wordlings, which has a mode that's very much like boggle. Uh, but has several other modes as well. And it's it's basically a word puzzle. And it's about anagrams and finding words and so on. And so it's kind of become my go-to games, uh, my go-to game lately for those moments when I have sort of a few minutes and I just want to either kill some time, I want to sort of de-stress, I want to just, uh, you know, enjoy doing something on my phone for a while when I'm waiting for something. So it's called Wordlings. It's on iOS only. I don't think it's on Android just yet. Um, it's free. Uh, and as with many of these apps, there there is a some kind of in-game in-app purchase model where you can you know spend money to buy in-game credits i haven't ever bought any of those things it's it's not like many of these games where it feels designed to make you frustrated with how little you can do until you buy something you really don't ever have to buy anything in this game you can do all the game functionality i think without any of that stuff so at any rate it's it's a great fun little game wordlings will include a link on the website to that um but that's my my weekly pick for this week um, that's the end of the episode uh, we'll include links on the website as usual to a number of the things we've talked about uh, lately I've been making most of those links uh, to the news roundup topics at least uh, to my items on the tech narrative site that we talked about a couple of weeks ago um, pretty much all the news items we talk about are ones that I've previously covered and written a little bit about there and so I've been linking to that because then you'll have kind of a written commentary as well as the link to the original news article covering that piece of news so that's something I've been doing lately if you want to head to the website at podcast.beyonddevices uh, you'll see those links there but again we'll link to various things we talked about today and uh, we should be back with you again next week with uh, our usual format and a whole new set of topics to talk about. So thanks for being with us, and we'll talk to you again next time.